1: And hello everyone. Welcome again to AOA. This is Mike Adams sitting in this week for the vacationing Mike Pearson. He'll be back with you on Monday. Coming up today, we're going to talk markets with Naomi Bloom with Total Farm Marketing. We're going to talk about renewable fuels, especially in connection with the new spending bill that has been passed. Some good things in it for the ethanol industry. We'll talk about it with Troy Bradenkamp with the Renewable Fuels Association. And we're going to get a dairy industry update today. Look at some uh, policy and legislation to talk about there with Paul Blyberg with the National Milk Producers Federation. All that coming up on today's program. But speaking of legislation and uh, some priorities for agriculture, we're joined now by Andrew Walmsley, Senior Director of Government Affairs for the American Farm Bureau Federation. Hi, Andrew. How are you?
2: Doing good, Mike. Great to hear your voice.
1: Thank you. Good to talk with you again. All right. Well, farm bill in the not so distant uh, future now, it's getting closer all the time, the next farm bill. I'm kind of wondering the the passage of this latest uh, government spending bill and the provisions in it for agriculture. How does that impact, you think, positively or negatively, uh, the next uh, writing of the next farm bill?
2: Yeah, Mike, I'm almost feeling like I'm pretending to be an economist because on one hand, there's definitely some some positives. And then on the other hand, you know, there are some things to be concerned about. Uh, There is some historic investments when you look at the Inflation Reduction Act, the Reconciliation Bill, uh, particularly targeted at several Farm Bill programs. You look at at REAP and some additional funding there. uh, And then a lot of the focus has been on the conservation programs, close to $20 billion dollars. Uh, for programs that you know are generally supported by by Farm Bureau and Farm Bureau members, uh, the, the Working Lands programs, the programs that that are very popular in the countryside that help farmers get to where uh, we need to be on on adopting more conservation practices, um, and, and and that and that's obviously welcomed. Uh, you know, generally though, in the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, Farm Bureau wasn't able to support it just because of all the other things that were in there. Uh, you know, you look at some of the tax increases safely, didn't directly uh, uh, go towards farms and ranches, but, you know, concerns around uh, $80 billion for the IRS. There's a lot of provisions in there that, that will probably make some of our energy inputs higher. Uh, so generally that's, you know, where the bill's at. But as far as the farm bill, you know, there, there are those dollars towards conservation, um, you know, but I also have concerns on what will be the willingness maybe for some Democrats to work rep- with Republicans uh particularly uh if if political projections are correct that the republicans will at least take the house you know the senate's a little bit more of a toss-up but you look at this package and that focus on conservation and climate in addition to what the administration's been able to do around nutrition I don't see as many incentives as there could be for Democrats to work with Republicans to deal with other issues in the Farm Bill, like improving crop insurance or commodity programs. So it is one hand and the other hand kind of idea that there's some additional funding there in conservation that might be able to be tapped into through the Farm Bill. Um, But is there uh, enough motivation now for both parties to come together in a way that we traditionally see in a Farm Bill to be bipartisan?
1: It's going to be challenging. You just you just pointed out how it's maybe even more challenging. But we know each farm bill now that is written in some ways gets harder to do, isn't it? I mean, you're you're you've got more people at the table, more voices at the table. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but it just makes it more difficult to reach consensus.
2: I don't know if I completely agree with that sentiment. I mean, you look at the 2018 Farm Bill, I think we had some of the highest votes uh, ever, particularly in the Senate, with 87 senators uh, in support of the bill. But it doesn't make it any easier. You're you're absolutely right. There's there's a ton more interest, which, you know, in a lot of ways we should view as a positive. More and more Mm -hmm. society recognizing the important role that, that rural communities, and in particular farmers or ranchers, can play, not only from a food security standpoint, other societal and environmental benefits that we can provide. So uh, it just takes a little bit more work to, to work with all the, the inter, uh, intersecting views and opinions on what rural policy should look like in the Farm Bill. It's one of the reasons why, you know, we continue to work through the Food and Agriculture Climate Alliance, which is kind of this unprecedented alliance of the, the food value chain, grower groups, commodity groups, and environmental groups. Uh, Trying to see what we can agree on and provide a united front to Congress as we head into the 2023 Farm Bill.
1: There's still the challenge, though, the perception about the Farm Bill with some as being just uh, giving something to farmers. uh, When so much of the Farm Bill, the vast majority of it, is not connected with production agriculture. It's more connected with other programs, important programs, but still, uh, that's the majority of the Farm Bill. And I don't think a lot of people understand or realize that.
2: Well, I'm not going to try to pick on the, the Inflation Reduction Act any further, but the Congress is known to name bills for not what they always do. And with the Farm Bill, while farm programs are an important component of that, we're now seeing over 80% of, of Farm Bill funding to go to nutrition mm-hmm. programs. I mean, you look at one program in particular, and you talk about the difficulties. If you have a very fiscal conservative Republican Congress, you know, we could be looking at the first trillion-dollar farm bill. Uh, again, uh, a challenge there, but also sheds the light on how important and how far-reaching uh, this piece of legislation is and why it's really uh, going to be a challenge for uh, all farmers, ranchers, commodity groups, uh, farm organizations to educate lawmakers. We continue to see new faces come to Congress. I think we're over 150 new members uh, of the House since the 2018 farm bill. That will be higher after the election in November. We've seen almost a quarter of the Senate will probably be new once we get past the midterms uh, in in November. So a lot of education on just the importance of the Farm Bill and how it impacts so many facets of our lives. I've always
1: felt Farm Bills are more reactionary than visionary. I mean, they try to look ahead and and, uh, pass things that are going to help in the future, but usually it's more about reacting to what's happening now or has happened recently. Do you agree with that?
2: I definitely don't disagree with that, and and that is always the challenge in the volatility that is uh, foreign policy and the nature of of agriculture. Right, Mother Nature is a is a tough business partner. Just as a ground floor, as we continue to see, you know, the challenges with drought across this country, really the unprecedented amount of events we've lived through uh, the the past couple of years. So it is it is tough. Uh, you also want to make sure that you're that you're not undermining any of the risk management tools that are working. I mean, you look at particularly crop insurance and and how important that has become for farmers and ranchers. So, uh, But we're in that stage where all the different commodity groups and Farm Bureau, we've got our Farm Bill Working Group that we've invited in all of our states in Puerto Rico uh, to talk through different options, talking to experts and saying, you know, if we did have additional resources, what could we do? And what happens if we don't have additional resources and constrained by, you know, the baseline and things like that? So those are options that I think everybody's working through right now. A lot of conversations you've got – Field hearings by House Ag Committee. You've had some field hearings by Senate Ag Committee. We'll see that ramp up as we get into the new year and probably post-election. Trying to take into account is how how do we be best prepared? uh, Well, not undermining what's working, but how can we make improvements to to address the challenges that that we're sure to face coming, coming at us here soon?
1: Yep, the farm bill process underway. That's Andrew Walmsley, Senior Director of Government Affairs for the American Farm Bureau Federation. Thanks, Andrew. Good to talk with you again. Yes, sir. Thank you. Take care. Up next, we talk markets with Naomi Bloom with Total Farm Marketing. Stay with us. This is AOA.
0: Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up.
3: The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 B.C. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria from Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called Bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Egg Network.
0: Are you headed to the Farm Progress Show in Boone, Iowa this year? If so, stop by the Trelleborg Wheel Systems booth to see all the latest in tires. Also, Mike Pearson of Agriculture of America will be broadcasting live all three days there from the Trelleborg Wheel Systems booth. That's booth 928. Stop by to watch the show at 9 a.m. And that's in Trelleborg booth 928. We'll see you in Boone at the Farm Progress Show.
4: Today's Cereal Plant Breeders efforts now contribute up to 70% of your farm yields, up from 50% via better plant genetic potential. The Seed Innovation Protection Alliance member companies want to earn your business as they reinvest 15% of their sales into better genetics with new traits for higher yield, improved end-use quality, and crop vigor for a changing environment. Join us in reinvesting in your future. Buy new, professionally produced seed from authorized seed companies and dealers. To report a seed infringement, call 1-844-SEED-TIP.
5: A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org.
0: You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike
3: Pearson.
1: And welcome back again. This is Mike Adams sitting in this week for the vacationing of Mike Pearson. We're going to talk markets now. Good to talk with Naomi Bloom, Senior Market Advisor for Total Farm Marketing. Naomi, how are you?
6: I am good. It's good to visit with you. How are you doing?
1: Doing good. Good to talk with you again. Well, never a dull moment, right, with the markets. Uh, kind of one of your thoughts as we head towards harvest. Do the markets, you think, between now and when we really get in to harvest hot and heavy, do the markets kind of trade on what they think it's going to be or wait and see what the, the harvest is going to be?
6: Well, sometimes it's a little bit of both. Um, right now we're just under this pressure that the crop is going to be good enough, um, but the question, of course, is will it actually end up being good enough or not? So we're just stuck with this perception right now, and that perception is what's weighing prices this week. Um, the USDA report last Friday was bearish for beans and supportive for corn, but it wasn't over-the-top bullish to get markets to just go you know, flashing higher, so we're having this pullback. Uh, we've got um, of course, crop tours coming up next week, and so we're all going to be very eager to see you know what's out there because that'll be finally we have people in fields actually examining things at a closer look versus just satellite imagery. Um, but you know seasonally also, Grain prices usually work lower until Labor Day weekend, and then they find that harvest low. And you know, I, I really think once the combines get going, um, we're going to see lower test weights, and that's going to, um, you know, bring down the yield ultimately. And and I'm a little bit, you know, short-term cautious, thinking that prices probably ease lower here. But boy, I tell you, if our corn crop's not there, I think we're going to see this market. Just race higher, and now we're hearing out of China that they're having extreme drought in some places. Uh, And so that makes me wonder is that the reason why China's been buddying up with Brazil lately to make sure that they can get some grain secured out of there? Uh, So that could be a actually bullish black swan if we find out that that Chinese crop is definitely smaller than what they're letting on. So, um, you know. It's, you got to be ready for anything right now, but I would be looking to buy a harvest low in a few weeks.
1: So it sounds like there's you're talking about the, more of a potential of our harvest rally because we get into these fields and find the, the harvest may not be as good. The yields may not be as good as expected. Although, I mean, you, you never know what that surprise could be up or down, but it sure sounds like that potential is there
6: yeah especially you know with that heat so again right now we're we're stuck trading these USDA numbers that make us all feel like it's going to be kind of you know good enough to get by so that's going to pressure us lower probably for another week or two but then when we when the calendar flips into September that seasonal low for grains corn and beans usually occurs uh, right when we get back from Labor Day weekend sometime between that and into the September USDA report um, and I think there's going to be some surprises out there. And I'm also quite curious to hear you know, how much uh, corn is out there for ending stocks because, again, we're getting into that time frame where I don't know a lot of people who have grain in the bin anymore. And um, you know, harvest might be a little bit later this year because we were planting so late. So mm-hmm. you know, it'll, truth will come out. I'm, I'm very curious to see how things turn out to be.
1: We're talking with Naomi Bloom, Senior Market Advisor for Total Farm Marketing. You mentioned China. It's interesting. Their drought issues, their economic issues. Um, You mentioned Brazil. Do do we see them moving closer and closer to Brazil to kind of protect themselves?
6: Yeah, I think that they're going to always just do what they can do to secure food. So they're going to, in the short term, maybe not make too many waves. But... Um, you know, they are still going to need to rely on the United States for some product. Just because of the amount of soybeans that they import, they are going to need something from us, and they are, of course been a net importer of corn recently. And with the question marks remaining around Ukraine, they want to make sure that they can get grain from us, but the fact that they are really being more aggressive to get their trade deals more uh, secured or organized with Brazil tells me that they want to make sure that they have grain from wherever they can get it. Whenever they need it.
1: Yeah, they uh, what they are good at is uh, identifying what they need and, and getting it right. <laughs> and They'll find a way yeah. to get it one way or another. Usually.
6: Yeah, that's for sure. And you know, um, with their economy not being great, I mean that makes sense. They've been their people locked up for a long time, so of course their factories weren't producing and and things working lower, and that's pressured the market here recently. But again, once once they once we get into that harvest, low price and time frame with our crop, I wonder if we're going to see them step in a little bit more and be a little bit more aggressive buyers. Um, I, my, my hunch is that they figure that the United States has a, a crop out there. But what we don't know for sure, of course, is going to be how light the test weight is because these kernels probably aren't going to be able to fill out like they normally would with that heat. You know, you think about the heat that was out there. Um, going to be significant and that might be the surprise thing when the combines get going is that yields might be just you know a touch less than what folks were anticipating because of that extreme heat that we had for almost a month
1: then there's the political aspect and at a time when they may normally be looking to buy from us we don't know what's going to be happening with the taiwan situation and where we're Mm. at with all that
6: yeah that's another big point um we're Definitely not um, making waves in the friendliness with China category right now because of the situation with Taiwan. So you know, it could be that you know potentially China is trying to um, secure grain from Brazil. Maybe they want to snub us in the future. But at the end of the day, if their crop is a lot smaller than what they're letting on, I would think that they have to be a little bit careful about who they're going to be picking fights with in the world and how they're going to pick fights, because globally. The USDA on that report, they lowered global carry out for corn. They lowered global carry out for wheat, and that is significant. And we still have tight ending stocks here in the United States in the bigger picture. So we're not out of the woods yet. And the reason that they increased the soybean ending stocks globally is because they're you know hoping still that the United States has this wonderful harvest. And they're anticipating and hoping that Brazil and Argentina over the winter have an amazing harvest. So we're kind of at this point right now of pause or um, resetting with market prices kind of stuck here in a little bit because we're, you know, that bullish news from last year is behind us and there could be some bullish news for the future. It could be a little bit short-term negative news for the future, so we might just be stuck here for a bit. Uh, You know, remember last year grain prices traded sideways for three months as it just tried to understand what was happening around the world. And, it, you know, part of me wouldn't be surprised if we see that pattern continue ahead going forward for the next two to three months. But at the end of the day, if global supplies are down, that's an issue because we have a lot of hungry people to feed.
1: So let me ask you this, because China's purchases are always critical to our prices and Mm -hmm. we always focus on that. With those tighter supplies, is China buying from us as critical this year to support price compared to years um, past? I,
6: well, you know, in 2020, I think they saw the derecho storm come through and the satellite imagery showed the bins were empty. So we got the big picture that we were out of old crop. And then they, you know, figured out that we'd have a smaller U.S. crop. So I think that they're going to say, you know, um, especially with, crop tours coming next week, they're gonna I think realize it's not a record crop here in the United States. And so they're gonna they don't want to let the cat out of the bag. Like they don't want to necessarily come in and buy large purchases right off the bat. Um, but I do think that we could see them do those flyer under the radar purchases that all of a sudden add up and then we're like, oh, you know, they've been buying a lot recently. And when they come in as bigger buyers It is usually when we find our harvest low because that's when prices are cheaper. So, of course, they're going to want to wait to see how cheap this can get before they come in as buyers. So we're going to want to watch that um, very closely for sure over the next three to four weeks as well.
1: Trying to figure out what China's doing or why they're doing it. That's a a (laughs) full-time job.
6: Yes, yes, absolutely.
1: <laughs> Naomi, good to talk with you again. I know you're busy, not only with the markets, but uh, I know you're you're playing a lot of music and uh, making the rounds. So uh, I know you're staying busy. Good to talk with you again.
6: Yeah, thanks. You too. Such a pleasure.
1: Take care. Naomi Bloom, Senior Market Advisor for Total Farm Marketing. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk with uh, Troy Breedenkamp with the Renewable Fuels Association. Um, you know, I've, I've expressed a lot of concerns about this uh, latest government spending bill. Um, it concerns me that we're spending more money in inflationary time. Seems like that's what helped get us into this position. But on the positive of this, there are some things in there that seem very good for the ethanol industry. We're going to focus on those coming up next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA.
0: Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away, more AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges. We'll be talking to CHS experts and farmers and rangers just like you. And we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more.
3: You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risvet. Severe drought brought water levels to record lows this month in China's Yangtze River Valley. Crop damage is currently occurring over 1.6 million acres of land, including rice, corn, and various other crops. Hydroelectric power is reduced, resulting in fertilizer and soybean crush facilities being shut down. Now, this is a major crisis in central China, but its overall impact on China's crop production is still limited at this point. Nonetheless, though, this morning's USDA weekly export sales report indicates a pickup of Chinese buying of U.S. corn and soybeans. This is probably more of just a hedging of their bets against the possibility of a tightening global balance sheet than a reflection of immediate need. Yes, China still does need a lot of purchasing yet for fall delivery, but its overall demand does still remain soft relative to normal. Tensions between China and the United States continue to escalate as well, with the United States ratcheting those higher again with an announcement that it will engage in trade talks with Taiwan. Near term, though, the focus is still on the U.S. corn and bean crops, finishing with a broad, drier weather pattern, albeit in the absence of heat. Traders will be closely following reports from the field next week when the Midwest Crop Tour spreads across the egg belt with social media full of reports and pictures from the field. Let's get a look at those commodity numbers. September corn down three and a half at six, and a half. Beans September down one and a half at fourteen seventy three and three quarters. Bean meal September up six ten a ton at four forty six seventy. Bean oil, September, down one sixty-nine at sixty-five seventy-two. Wheat Chicago, September, down thirty two and a quarter at seven thirty-one. Kansas City, September, down thirty seven and three quarters at eight thirteen and a quarter. And that Minneapolis, September wheat, that is down twenty eight and three quarters at eight fifty-four and three quarters. Live catalog is down a dime at one forty one sixty five. Feeders August down twenty seven at one eighty two. 97. And the October lean hogs, they are down 177 at 96.27. Well, the Dow right now is down about 130 points. The dollar is sitting at 107 and crude oil is trading up a little over a buck and a half at just under $90 a barrel. This is AOA. I'm Richard Ristvet.
7: Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle.
3: I like that too.
7: Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council.
0: This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson.
1: And welcome back. Mike Adams sitting in this week for the vacationing Mike Pearson. Mike will be back with you on Monday. Joining me now is Troy Bradenkamp. He's the Senior Vice President for Government and Public Affairs for the Renewable Fuels Association. Troy, good to talk with you again. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Mike. Welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So I have I have these Mixed feelings. I'm torn. A lot of things in this so-called Inflation Reduction Act uh, that really concern me. Uh, More government spending in inflationary times and more IRS uh, agents and things like that. So a lot of things that I'm very concerned about. But then I see, hey, there's some good things in there for for the ethanol industry and that that makes me happy so uh, I'll, i'm going to focus on the positive here let's take the, uh, the half full part of the glass here uh what do you see as the biggest benefits it looks like could be uh, more than one uh, i mean it could be some opportunities uh, as far as on the carbon side environmental side for ethanol and also just getting more ethanol available to consumers
9: no, you're absolutely right, Mike. And 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 we would probably share some of that consternation as as well. I mean, no bill is perfect. Uh this bill certainly would would fit that that definition. Um there are things in there that I'm sure people do not like, but from an ethanol and a biofuel perspective, uh we did look at what's in this bill and and we're actually pretty pleased. Um you know, there's a biofuel infrastructure program, another $500 million to get more higher blend infrastructure to the retail level. That should hopefully help consumers at the pump and, and obviously make higher blends more available across the country. That's that's a good thing. Uh, biodiesel, um, their tax credit was extended. So that was an important aspect to what was needed there. Those of your listeners that may not know, but a lot of our corn oil that we're harvesting now goes into biodiesel production. So that's gonna be a benefit there as well. It does create a new sustainable aviation fuel tax credit. This is something we've been working on for almost a year and a half. Um, I can tell you a year and a half ago, I didn't know what sustainable aviation fuel was, but uh, I think it's going to be a pretty, impar- a, a pretty important part of ethanol's future. Um, and it does have good modeling language provisions within there that should allow for corn-based alcohol to be converted to jet fuel. So now we're using ethanol more as a feedstock. That's, that's going to be an important pro- uh, program moving forward it creates a clean fuel production credit. This is something where if you think of the RFS that we have today, that's a volumetric uh, standard program, the clean fuel production credit will, will help establish more of a performance-based uh, credit program. So again, if, if our ethanol is doing what we think it's doing, lowering carbon, Uh, intensity, then it should get a credit under that new clean fuel production credit. Last thing I would mention, and you already did, was about the carbon capture components. Uh, You know, from an RFA perspective, we really feel that ethanol in the future is going to go to a net zero production perspective. In order to do that, we've got to have a carbon capture component to that. This bill does a lot of work on 45Q. It enhances a lot of that program, makes it more user friendly. Um, and ethanol plants will be eligible to participate more than they have in the past. That's going to allow us to take the last 20 to 25 carbon intensity points off of a uh, carbon intensity score for ethanol, and that is what's going to allow us to get to net zero. So while I understand there are things in that bill that, that there's a lot of people that would not like, and, and I would be one of those, Uh, There are some provisions, uh, a handful at least, that are going to be, I think, pretty positive for the ethanol industry moving forward.
1: We're talking with Troy Bradencamp, uh, Senior Vice President, Government and Public Affairs for the Renewable Fuels Association. Troy, I think another big part of this, when I think back a couple of years ago, when it became very obvious that the push was going to be in Washington uh, on these climate issues, uh, the big question was, was, were they willing to, would the powers that be be willing to, acknowledged biofuels role in achieving some of those climate goals this bill at least in part seems to say yes they are acknowledging that
9: you know it does uh the provisions that i just laid out are all going to be really beneficial for ethanol and they do give us a road map not only in the interim but also i think far down the road um now i w- would be lying if if i said they're there wasn't people in this town that would just assume everything be an electric vehicle tomorrow. Uh, this bill in the provisions that I outline really uh, convey that that message that we aren't going to get there tomorrow from an electric vehicle perspective. There are some areas of the economy uh, that will never be electrified, and these provisions will allow for biofuels, and in particular corn based ethanol, to play a role um, in those. Uh, areas far into the future. Take the sustainable aviation fuel question, for instance. Yeah, you know, I don't know where we're at from uh, electrifying an airplane, but or would I maybe want to even get on one? But there's so many things that can be done through a sustainable aviation fuel program to lower that carbon intensity and still uh, keep that plane safely in in the air. Those, I think, are some areas that that there's a long-term future for ethanol and other biofuels, and this bill does reflect some of those. So we have made some strides uh, within this Congress and within this administration to reflect uh, the role that that ethanol and other biofuels can play in their drive to uh, net zero carbon intensity down the road.
1: How close are we in ethanol production to getting to net zero on carbon?
9: So right now, if you were to take a standard dry mill, and you were to look at you know, the standard credit we get for, for the corn production today, and, and this isn't even the best modeling uh, available, we're still scoring at about a 50% carbon intensity reduction. So we, that makes us 50% lower carbon intensive than standard conventional gasoline, which is the, really that's the benchmark for, for where we score carbon. Um, we are there, and that's that's an aggregate across the entire industry. So there are folks that are below that number. Clearly, there are some plants that are probably probably going to be operating above that from a carbon intensive perspective. RFA members last summer, if you recall, uh, committed to a 70% carbon intensive reduction by 2030, and a net zero or better by 2050. So. Uh, we think we can make huge strides within the next five to ten years, and then it may take a little longer. But but we're pretty confident that whatever program is out there that says net zero by 2050, corn-based ethanol across the country uh, uh, could and should play a role uh, in that kind of a environment. Um, maybe even well before 2050. It is going to take technologies. It's going to take people. Warming up to CO2 pipelines, you know, for one of those. That's that's one of those technologies that I think is going to be pretty important um, to the ethanol industry long term in order for us to get to that score. But we're well on our way, and uh, we're going to be making strides each and every day. Um, and I think things are pretty bright when you look at our future overall.
1: Troy, there's obviously the, uh, the climate benefits. But there's also been a price benefit to consumers, to motorists, and in this uh, summer of high gas prices, many have benefited and taken advantage of the lower prices prices at the pump for for ethanol blends. Have we seen uh, an increase in higher ethanol blend availability across the country, and motorists taking advantage of that?
9: We have, um, and it's and it's apparent. And it's and it's obvious for any consumer uh, like you and I that pull up to the pump. Uh, you just look for the uh, ethanol blend that, that that's got the highest percentage of ethanol in it. It is going to almost always be the lowest priced product at that pump. Um, we saw tremendous spreads on an on an E15, even to E15 to E0 spreads were 25, 30, 40 cents per gallon, and that was significant. That has driven a lot of demand for E15. Clearly, us getting the emergency waiver for E15 over the summer was was huge because uh, the last thing we wanted to do was shut off about 3,000 pumps um, or 3,000 retail locations across the country uh, at the time when it was needed most. Uh, so, And we've seen a huge uptick in the not only the amount of people putting in E15 at, at retail, but even on the E85 side. Uh, E85... Uh, sales are are really robust, particularly in California, where those consumers were seeing $3 or more uh, price differential between conventional fuel and E85. So uh, there has been a price uh, benefit for us. Um, We have made as much uh, noise about that as we can uh, to make sure that consumers know not only is this a better product for the environment it's renewable, it's lowering our uh, demand for foreign sources, but it also has a huge price advantage when it comes to the consumer. So um, that's all the messaging we've been doing all summer, and I I think it has paid off. I mean, we're seeing everything kind of slow down right now, Mike, but uh, for the last six to nine months, it's been pretty robust.
1: Well, there are a lot of opportunities out there, and the biofuels industry was saying, give us a chance, we can, we can help with these challenges and we can meet these opportunities. And uh, it's good to see that it, at least in some cases happening, there's always more to do, but it seems like a a lot of uh, positive steps. Troy, good to talk with you, get caught up again, take care and uh, we'll talk down the road somewhere.
9: Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it.
1: Troy Breidenkamp, Senior Vice President, Government and Public Affairs for the Renewable Fuels Association. All right. Up next, we're going to talk some dairy industry issues, ag appropriations, uh, anything in uh, this uh, latest government spending bill for dairy. We'll get into all that with Paul Blyberg, the National Milk Producers Federation, next on AOA.
0: Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away, more AOA coming
4: right up.
7: You are not your diagnosis.
4: A medical chart is not your identity.
7: And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too to be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone, because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding.
4: We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa,
7: Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. win. We, 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 we are are the the Foundation Fighting Blindness. Together, we are Fighting Blindness.
0: Join the fight at FightingBlindness.org.
8: I'll take Dig a Little, Learn a Lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a Little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes. Go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. (laughs)
0: Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too. Through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station.
7: It's been said that when someone you love has Parkinson's, you have Parkinson's. The Parkinson's Foundation knows that the disease doesn't just affect the diagnosed. It affects everyone who supports and helps care for them.
8: If you or someone you know is living with Parkinson's, a neurological disease that affects movement, we understand that it can be difficult to know where to find help. If you
7: have questions, the Parkinson's Foundation has answers. Answers for everyone in the fight we can help you understand the disease, help you find expert care and local support, give you tips for living a better life, and share the
4: latest research. Find your answers and join us in the fight against Parkinson's.
7: To learn more, please go to parkinson.org
4: or call 1-800-473-4636.
7: That's 1-800-473-4636. The Parkinson's Foundation. Better lives
4: together. Seed Innovation Protection Alliance seed company members invest 15% of sales into new seed innovations for your cereal acres. Check the bag for certified seed or single-use agreement restrictions so you don't step over the line or talk to your seed dealer. Plant breeders develop better, stronger genetics for your farm, so let's reinvest together to improve yields and quality. Without your patronage and trust, seed companies wouldn't be able to continually develop new genetics, traits, seed treatments, and other innovations to meet your needs are you headed to the farm
0: progress show in boone iowa this year if so stop by the trelleborg wheel systems booth to see all the latest in tires also mike pearson of agriculture of america will be broadcasting live all three days there from the trelleborg wheel systems booth that's booth 928 stop by to watch the show at 9am and that's in trelleborg booth 928 we'll see you in boone at the farm progress show
1: And Mike Adams sitting in for the Vacationing Mike Pearson. Good to have you with us and good to be talking dairy issues now with Paul Blyberg. He's Senior Vice President, Government Relations for the National Milk Producers Federation. Paul, how are you? Good, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Good to hear from you. Good to talk with you again. A lot of thoughts on this uh, latest government spending bill. It's just hard for me to call it the Inflation Reduction Act when it doesn't seem to really be going to reduce inflation. But as we just talked in our last segment, there's some good things in it for the the biofuels industry. There are some good things in it, I know, for conservation. Anything in there that you, uh, from a dairy perspective, have thoughts on?
8: Yeah, so we've been very focused on the conservation funding provisions of the package. As you know, in the dairy industry, about two years ago, we set uh, several environmental stewardship goals to achieve voluntarily by 2050, and that includes becoming greenhouse gas neutral or better by that time, as well as optimizing water quality and water use. And uh, the conservation funding that's included in this bill will increase funding for existing programs like EQIP and CSP and RCPP. And those programs are already very important helping dairy farmers do a lot of the proactive sustainability work that they do every day, but the programs are constantly oversubscribed. There's way more demand for any of those programs, and there is funding to go around. And so we think that the inclusion of additional money in this bill, with that emphasis on climate-smart ag practices as laid out, will be very helpful to us as our producers continue working toward their 2050
1: goals. All right. Uh, Let's talk ag appropriations and uh, some things that we should look for there from a dairy perspective that could be helpful
8: sure well you know ag appropriations i think is something we'll expect to see more progress on in a post-election uh, kind of lame duck session if you will you know the house has passed its legislation as part of a larger bill this summer the senate released a draft measure uh, a few weeks ago as well but obviously that was right on the heels of the inflation reduction act coming out and so the appropriations bills are kind of on the back burner for the time being and when Congress comes back in next month in September, they're really only in for a short amount of time before the election. They'll probably just pass some kind of a short-term continuing resolution to fund the government past the election. Now, how far that will go right now is anybody's guess. But when an appropriations bill eventually does get done for agriculture for fiscal year 23, you know, one thing we were able to add in the House bill on a bipartisan basis is additional funding for the Food and Drug Administration to keep working toward expedited uh, approvals of animal feed ingredients. And this is something we started work on in fiscal year 2022, and it's part of our climate and sustainability agenda I was just talking about from the standpoint of reducing enteric methane emissions. There are new feed additives that are more in use in other countries than they are here, Uh, that can significantly reduce enteric methane emissions from cows. And the reason they're not here uh, used as widely here is partly because the approval process is very slow right now. FDA currently classifies these additives as drugs rather than foods, even though they really move as digested products to the animal. So we're working toward getting that classification change and trying to provide FDA with the resources to do that. The other thing we're continuing to work on, and we've made some steps on this in both the House and Senate, is providing some additional funding to close the gap for producers who were impacted a year ago when USDA rolled out. what's called the Pandemic Market Volatility Assistance Program. This is a program that was very creative. The department came up with to kind of reimburse farmers for some of the pandemic losses, but we're still continuing to seek additional funding there to kind of account for the fact that the program had a cap that hit many larger producers and medium-sized producers, even though they suffered these losses on all of their volumes.
1: Paul, immigration is such a huge issue. Uh, it's is certainly important to, in particular to, the, uh, to agriculture and, and, and as we're talking to the dairy industry. Uh, we know the situation uh, with the, the southern border. We wait for the midterms. That could change the dynamic of things. Do you see Congress anytime soon finally addressing uh, immigration and having a, a comprehensive immigration policy for this country?
8: Well, I'm not too optimistic about there being a comprehensive bill anytime soon. Yeah, that's been tried a number of times in different contexts, and it hasn't gotten across the finish line yet. I am hopeful because Senators Bennett and Crapo are continuing to talk in the Senate about the House-passed Farm Workforce Modernization Act and whether they can – make some improvements to that bill that would enable it to get 60 votes in the senate now again i don't expect that to happen in september if anything's to happen there but it's possible that the post-election lame duck session will be a time for action there if congress is looking to clear the decks of a number of items
1: Work so hard i know agriculture has over the years gotten close a number of times but it's just hard to get that across the finish line
8: exactly exactly it's tough because the politics of immigration whether you're talking about ag workforce or anything else, really gets sucked into the much broader immigration mm-hmm. issues that, that are very emotional for a lot of people. And so even when we're talking about very finite needs, it's hard to, sometimes for some to separate those out from the bigger debates. And so I think we, yeah. we feel good that we've been able to do that somewhat with this bill in the House, and it got a certain amount of bipartisan support. But you know, that, that's obviously a factor over whether it can get across the finish line too.
1: Yeah, it kind of falls into that trap again. If you can't fix everything, they don't fix anything. And, uh, you know, here's here's a part of it that could be fixed or at least addressed and improved. And perhaps it will. Hey, um, real quick, top priority in the next farm bill for dairy.
8: Well, I think in the next farm bill, a couple of things. You know, the dairy margin coverage is working very well. And so we're hoping to maintain that and maybe make some targeted improvements as needed. Uh, but it is, by and large, functioning very well. And then, you know, building on this new conservation funding, we'll need the additional emphasis on conservation programs, trade promotion program funding, consumption in the nutrition space. So a number of areas. Obviously, the last farm bill and even the farm bill before we really had to revamp the dairy safety net from the ground up, right? We did that in 2014, and then we didn't get it quite right in 2014, so we kind of had to do it all over again in 2018. We're in a good position this time that we don't have to do that. We have a program that's working fairly well. That doesn't mean there aren't tweaks that could be made, especially around things like the you know production history calculation and getting that up to date a bit more. But by and large, we have something working well.
1: Paul, good to talk with you again. Thanks for the update. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Take care. Paul Blyberg, Senior Vice President, Government Relations for the National Milk Producers Federation. That wraps it up for today. I've got one more day. That's coming up uh, tomorrow. We'll wrap it up with markets and biofuels and a Farm Progress Show preview and a Washington update with Iowa Senator Charles Grassley. All that coming tomorrow. Hope you'll join us right here on AOA.
0: This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.